Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we have Dr. Saman Nimatulahi. He is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at University of Arizona, where he also serves as the Associate Program Fellowship Director. He was a fellow at Hopkins and worked with us for uh, several years and broke our heart by leaving and going out west. But our loss is uh, Arizonians' gain. And welcome. Hi, Shmuel. Thanks so much for uh, having me. I was also very sad to leave Hopkins as well, but I'm back in uh, Tucson with my wife and son, and it's just nice to be back home. Great. Awesome. So uh, tell us a little about yourself and uh, your journey to infectious disease and then to uh, transplant infectious disease. Yeah, definitely. So I grew up in Tucson. Uh, It was my hometown and did high school and undergraduate and even medical school here. And near the end of my medical school, my wife was applying to MPH programs across the country and got into Columbia. So once she got into Columbia for her MPH, I kind of focused my energy to try to get to a program in the Northeast. And I got very lucky and matched into Columbia for internal medicine. And so we moved to New York and did three years of internal medicine at Columbia, then followed by three years of infectious disease at Hopkins, and then with a specialty specialization in transplant NID, and now back in Tucson. And I've been faculty here for about a year and a half after fellowship, and it's been great. And I live here in Tucson now with my wife, who just finished her PhD in uh, environmental health sciences, and also have a six-year-old son who's uh, finished his first half of first grade. So that's uh, very exciting. Wow. Yeah, no, it's been it's been great. <laughs> as far as the journey to ID, you know, I really started actually in medical school, um, which I think where a lot of people's interests in certain subspecialties start. And I just love the the diversity of patients and the complexity of the patients. And actually was thinking about doing infectious disease and critical care. And so when I started residency, I thought I was going to do maybe a blend of both. And then one of the Palm Crit attendings came to me after I was talking about whether I should do both or do Palm Crit or do ID. And he said, you know, the first question you really need to ask yourself is whether you want to be a consultant or a primary team, you know, Mm -hmm. usually with ID is more consultant. And when you do critical care, you're more of the primary team. And really that's your main question you want to try to answer first and then decide whether what field you really want to go into because they both have lots of overlap. And so I reflect on that question a lot and I realize that I love being a consultant. (laughs) And I, of course, being primary team is great, but for my own personal interest, I just love being a consultant. And so that really, that conversation was really instrumental for me to really shifting gears and focusing a lot on infectious disease. And when I really focused, started focusing on that during residency and my love for transplant infectious disease blossomed. I just, again, not only the complexity, but really layering, putting that extra layer of the the immunocompromised state and which arm of the immune system is down and which infections can develop as a result of that. And so that really started blossoming again during residency. And then of course, during fellowship, I already knew what I wanted to do with transplant ID. So, you know, really focused on that during my second and third year with further training in transplant ID. You got interested in education. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I 
That also started during medical school. I had a mentor who was really into medical education and developing of different curricula and also studying it. And so I had a, you know, a couple of publications actually in medical school related to medical education work. And again, that kind of interest continued during residency. And I had the opportunity during fellowship to get a master's in education in the health professions through Johns Hopkins um, University School of Education. And so I had finished that. That was about a two, three-year program. And so I just finished that. And that has really allowed me to not only become a great you know, educator and try to educate trainees, but also really try to develop curriculum and how to really design them to make sure you get the appropriate outcomes that you're looking for and looking at assessments and evaluation. And I didn't realize how complex all of this was until really going through the master's program and, you know, learning from Michael Milia, who is my mentor at Hopkins, very complex, (laughs) but I'm slowly moving through it. And I've been lucky with my position here in Tucson to become the associate program director for the ID fellowship, which is also, you know, a whole other field. I had no idea how complex it was with respect to evaluations and making sure everything is structured according to ACGME requirements and things like that. So it's been really enlightening. So many of our listeners are people that are in uh, various levels of training, and one of the uh, jobs that they may look at might include being a uh, an associate program director or a program director. What does it entail, and what are the things that people should be uh, aware of as they contemplate that type of career? That's a great question. I've you know, there is certain, I think every associate program director for different fellowships probably have different job descriptions, depending on what the program director needs help with. And so for here, you know, I've essentially have been helping with different steps of the pro- the fellowship program with the program director. Program director, who's Liz Connick, is absolutely amazing and really cares for all the fellows and makes sure that everything is done according to the ACGME requirements and um, has been doing just fantastic work with it. And so I essentially just help her throughout the different parts of the program. So I help with recruitment where we have different, you know, recruitment days throughout the um application season and, you know, do the introductory sessions with the applicants and also do the interviews with the applicants. I help with curriculum development. When I first started the job a few months ago, I kind of helped revamp the curriculum to where we have like a core lecture series and followed by other lecture series that are more high, you know, high yield topics that kind of repeat over the, you know, every two years, the same curriculum is kind of repeated. So the fellows get the curriculum all at one time you know, participating with the scheduling, realizing I didn't realize how complex scheduling was, fellows, uh, fellow schedules are. And so got a nice glimpse into that and making sure that fellows don't violate duty hours and making sure they get certain days off and things like that. And so that has, that's been very complex and <laughs> learning about that, uh, participating in all the different committees that are involved with the fellowship. And then, you know, there's things that kind of come up on a day-to-day basis, like different issues and events that come up. And so I help with the program director do that. And so for me, you know, when the program director brought me on, the two big things she really wanted me to focus on is, you know, the curriculum development and also trying to, you know, advertise and promote the program here. And so one of the things I did as associate program director is kind of help work with the the video publication and production group here in Arizona to create a promotional video for the fellowship and for the division and smaller videos and things like that and kind of heightening the website a little bit. And so that's one of the other um, job titles that I had as APD. 
So when somebody's negotiating for that type of position, what percentage FTE do you think would be reflective of the amount of work that it requires? And then also the opportunity cost, because if things that they they can't do otherwise to bring in funds through other ways. Totally. I think in general, people that are, for example, like myself, mostly clinical and within the education realm, it's really hard to, it, it can be difficult to come by protected time. And so and unfortunately, a lot of the protected time, as you reflect, as you're stating it, it's less than what the actual amount of work is. The ACGME had just come out with, depending on the size of your program, each the PD and the APD comes out with certain percentage of protected mm-hmm. time. And so, for our program, we have a fellowship program of less than seven fellows. That's the cutoff between less than seven and then seven above is one the first division. And so programs that are less than seven, which is us, we have six fellows. The program director gets 20% protected time and the APD technically doesn't get any protected time, but is depending on whether they fit certain criteria, they can perhaps get 10% protected time. And so through the department here, I'm getting 10% protected time as APD and the program director gets 20%. But I'll say that that there are some weeks that are less than that, you know, 10% being reflective about four hours per week. Some weeks are less than four hours per week, but generally it's more than four hours per week. But I really enjoy the work that I do with the fellowship program. And so for me, I just really like the work that I'm doing. I love working with the fellows and I love educating and creating different curricula and stuff. So for mm-hmm. me, it's it's worth it to do that. Sure, sure. No, that's very, uh, very helpful and important information. Now, one of the ways that uh, you've been doing education is through uh, social media and, and podcasts like this one. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think there's definitely been a huge move to trying to educate through social media, particularly with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, you know, initially at the beginning, everything was moved to virtual, no one was meeting in person. And so there was huge growth of different podcasts and, you know, teaching through social media platforms like Twitter and Instagram and blogging started to increase. So a whole bunch of different virtual platforms started to increase. And I think on the whole, it's great in that it helps flatten the hierarchy in the sense and that people can, you know, access information from anywhere around the world at any time, asynchronously or synchronously. So that part is great. I think areas that can be improved on is trying to, or at least what I try to do when I try to look at material is trying to see who had created the material and if it's been vetted or not. And so sometimes like not all materials created equally, I guess to say. And so it's really important to know where you're getting that information from and whether it's valid or not. And to that point, there's a lot of, you know, misinformation and disinformation. And there's actually two different terminology. Misinformation is inadvertent spread of false information and disinformation is purposeful spreading of misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I think it's it's really easy to spread that kind of information on social media, given that you can tweet something or send something really quick and it's just open to the whole wide world. And so I think those are some of the downsides of it. But I think as long as you're aware of some of those downsides, I really think that social media and virtual learning in general, in addition to 
supplementing it with, you know, traditional in-person teaching, I think a combination of those two can really heighten, you know, undergraduate and graduate medical education. Sure, sure. So tell us about some of the things you're working on now. So I work as a the medical education research lead for two podcasts. One of them is the clinical problem solvers. And the other one is the cardio nerds, which is a cardiology based podcast. And so with those two groups, we're really trying to identify ways to, you know, enhance the educational content that's released from there, but more, but equally important to try to see how we can study it to see how we can improve, you know, clinical reasoning skills and cardiovascular education amongst people that are listening to the podcast. And so we're designing, you know, survey studies and, you know, interviews um, and focus groups to try to see like how people use the podcast and how they're, how they're implementing that knowledge into their daily practice to change, you know, and then we're really trying to improve patient outcomes. And I will say that early on when I was getting this podcast started, you were very helpful in connecting me with your colleagues that had worked on the other podcasts to uh, sort of show me the ropes. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And, and the, something like those colleagues from the you know clinical problem solvers, they're just really great and happy to always share that information with others. And so that's stuff that I'm doing more on the general medical education side within transplant infectious disease. I'm part of the the AST ID community practice education work group. And mm-hmm. so within this work group, there's lots of very active um, individuals from across the country and also in parts of the world, including, you know, Canada, that are really interested in trying to improve transplant infectious disease education amongst the trainees. And so within this work group, we created three, because there was so much interest and so many members of the group, we actually created three subgroups within this group. The first group is we're really trying to define the educational needs within transplant ID, both in adults and with uh, in the pediatric transplant ID. And so we're really trying to characterize the didactic and the clinical experiences of the ID fellows within transplant ID. And so we had developed a survey and we disseminated the survey and we already collected results from the ID fellows, both general ID fellows, transplant ID fellows, and pediatric ID fellows. And so we're exploring like the non-infectious disease didactic experiences, capturing data about their clinical experiences on a much more granular level and trying to figure out what their clinical experiences are not related to direct patient care, such as like reviewing like selection meetings, looking at, you know, UNOS and things like that. And so we've collected the data and we're in the process of writing that. So we're really excited to, you know, hopefully write that up and, you know, publish it for um, to share with everyone. Terrific. Yeah. The second thing we've, uh, we're working on is trying to figure out the the current landscape of transplant infectious disease fellowships because I feel like they're you know it's not ACGME accredited and so a lot of pro- you know a lot of programs have you know transplant infectious disease tracks, transplant infectious disease fellowships. What's mm-hmm. the difference between a track and a fellowship? Do you need a fellowship in order to have a transplant ID job or is a tract enough? And so there's all these unknown questions and how, like, how are these different programs creating, creating guidelines for, you know, the differences between the two and why do they have some and why programs don't have any. And so we're collecting data um, about, we're, we're designing to try to see how to collect that information best. And so we're going to be, you know, deciding between another survey study or maybe doing some interviews with some key stakeholders at different parts of the country to try to see, you know, how are these programs being funded and how are they designed and, you know, kind of saying what the differences are between the two. Um, so I'm really excited about that as well. 
And the final thing, there's a, there's a final subgroup where there's, um, it's called like the medical educators in transplant ID. And so we want to really, this subgroup is really trying to focus on how to develop and amplify the role of medical educators in transplant ID, trying to figure out, you know, some strategies on how they get promoted and recognized in the transplant ID realm, how to develop mentorship opportunities and, you know, how they can interact with educators and other AST non-ID work groups. And so, these are three subgroups that are working simultaneously and they're filled with people that are very passionate about the field. And I'm just very excited to be part of them and trying to figure out, trying to trying to improve transplant and disease education. Great. Amazing work and so important. And as our field continues to develop, it's really terrific having these organized approaches toward teaching more than just, well, this is what we've been doing. This is what you should be doing, but something much more organized than that. Yeah, um, totally. If I can switch gears and present a case to you that people that are outside of the Southwest U.S. will uh, find very educational because it's often an area of mystery to uh, us in the East Coast and, and elsewhere. So this is a uh, not a real case. This is a composite of various cases, but it's a 44-year-old mm -hmm. man with hypertension, end-stage renal disease, considered for kidney transplantation. He has lived in Arizona for many years, but now lives in Baltimore. As part of the pre-transplant evaluation, because of the history of having lived in uh, an area that is endemic for coccidioides, he had coccidioides antibodies that were measured. It was complement fixation at one to two. He's asymptomatic. He uh, has never knowingly had coccidioides, never been treated for it, and again, never had any symptoms. So I'll start with at where you are, you might not have ordered that test right off the bat. You might have ordered a different test. Tell us about that. And then once we get this result, what do we do about it? Yeah, that is, you know, even though I did, you know, went to med school here, I didn't realize the complexity of Toxicity's management until becoming an attending. And so it took me actually a really long time to figure it out. I had to read a lot of articles and just learning out through a practice. And so, yeah, I just, it just took me a very long time. And so I realized how challenging it is to manage and also how devastating it is to once you develop this infection post transplant, as far as like high morbidity and mortality. And so there's lots of studies that have been done, most of which have been, a lot of which have been done by the, the Mayo Clinic group from Phoenix, Arizona. And so, you know, they had seen that without prophylaxis, the risk of developing coccidioides infection within that first, within the first year to transplant is somewhere around seven to 9%, which is pretty high, but almost one in 10 people will develop coccidioides without prophylaxis. And of those 10%, a majority of them will have high dissemination and mortality. About 50 to 60% of those had died when fluconazole prophylaxis hadn't been used. And it got much better once fluconazole prophylaxis had been implemented. So the incidence of an infection went down from the 7 to 9% range I had discussed down to 1% to 3% once fluconazole prophylaxis was started. Um, and they had even done studies where they saw, all right, so maybe we do targeted prophylaxis where someone that had prior IgG that was positive or prior history of it, give them fluconazole versus someone that didn't have a history or a prior IgG positivity, not giving prophylaxis to them. And they saw that even within this targeted prophylaxis group, there was still some people that were developing infections. And so after all these studies, they said, all right, that's enough. 
everyone is going to get prophylaxis after transplant, especially if they're living in endemic area, particularly in the Southwest. And so within the first year of transplant, no matter what kind of transplant you're going to get, everyone gets fluconazole for that first year. And so that is standard here in most centers that are endemic with coccidioides. So presumably that's an element of reactivation, but then also, as you sort of suggested, it's infection after the transplant. Totally right. You, you're it was so perfect what you just said because I was going to talk about the the three major ways where patients get coxy, and so that's exactly right. So a lot of times we see reactivation of prior infection, but to your point, we see primary infection after transplant, particularly during the times when right after the prophylaxis is done. So after that one year, patients can develop primary infection after transplant. Then, as you talked about, the reactivation of prior infection, and then there's also donor derived infection. So particularly in you know. Because here it's kind of a moot point. You get prophylaxis for that first year, anyways. But in mm-hmm. cases of patients that didn't get prophylaxis during that first year, you and you get a transplant from a patient that is from an endemic area, there's possibilities of getting donor-derived infection. And so, what we do for like screening pre-transplant, we do we get a pretty thorough history. So if someone is does come into my clinic for a pre-transplant eval, you know, I do pretty good review of systems and a pretty thorough examination head to toe and making sure they don't have any CNS disease, they don't have any skin disease, skin manifestations like erythronodosum, things like that. Um, you know, obviously making sure they don't have any respiratory distress and also making sure they're not having a lot of GU symptoms because coxie can also go to the, the GU. So thinking about pulmonary, CNS, skin, and GU by the four main places that I always think about. So I think going pretty decent clinical history and then also the serologies. And so the main test we do first is the test that has the highest sensitivity and that's doing the the enzyme immunoassay, the EIA for IgG and IgM. Mm-hmm. And so those are, an IgM positivity by itself, it's always hard to know how to interpret IgM, just like with a lot of other infections, there could be a false positive or it could be indicative of an early infection. And so a lot of times we repeat those generally two to four weeks after to see whether there's going to be a seroconversion from the IgM to IgG or the IgM goes away and, and it may have been you know, a false positive. So depending on the test you get, but if it's an IgG that's positive, then it usually reflexes to a confirmatory test that has higher specificity. Usually what we do is try to get it to a comp fix so we can get a a titer to see how much perhaps antibody antigen combination binding there is. Uh, but sometimes it does get reflexed to a immunodiffusion, uh, immunodiffusion test, IMDF as well. And so it looks like for this patient that you're presenting, I'm I'm assuming may have had an IgG positivity, or if not, you know, has sent the comp fix. And so this comp fix of one to two is on the lower end. We get worried about disseminated coxy when the comp fix titer is greater than one to 16. And so the patient is not there yet, but with a positivity of one to two, it does indicate that there's probably some low level activity of coccidioides in the patient, despite the patient being, you know, asymptomatic. And so if I do the whole history in the exam and I, you know, in a chest x-ray, PA and lateral, and there's no cavitary lesions in the chest x-ray, no pulmonary nodules or things like that. If it wasn't for the comp fix being positive, we probably would have said, if there's no, there's no concern for active infection, you know, will continue to, you know, monitor your symptoms. And if nothing happens until you transplant, you know, you can get transplanted 
And then you get a higher dose of fluconazole. We usually give a prophylactic dose if someone didn't have coxie within the first, you know, around the peritransplant area. But if they have a prior serology that's positive, then we generally do a higher dose of fluconazole for the first 12 months and then lifelong prophylaxis afterwards. In this situation, if there's concern for active infection, pre-transplant, we generally treat before transplant. And recommendations are pretty various as far as what to do. A lot of people do say they want to try to get at least six months of antifungals in before transplant. Sometimes that's not possible, right? Someone that has a liver, end-stage liver disease and needs the transplant, sometimes I you know, they don't have six months to live. And so that gets truncated a lot, but someone that has a, you know, on the pre-kidney list and, you know, they have opportunity to wait for six months. It is safer to wait for those six months to get trans to get treated, see the CF titer come down, look for symptoms, follow imaging. If there were imaging findings mm-hmm. and, you know, transplant six months afterwards. And so that's probably, I mean, this that's probably what I would do in this situation only because the CF titer is mildly positive. I mm-hmm. probably would recommend depending on making sure there's no drug drug interactions and QTC issues and things like that. Then we'll probably treat for six months and hopefully wait, look at that CF titer go down to zero, less than one to two, and you know, ensure that you know the imaging doesn't change and symptoms doesn't change during that time. Now, you recently wrote a letter in response to, um, in terms of length of therapy, and there was an article, I believe it was in CID, that said maybe you don't need lifelong prophylaxis for, uh, I believe it was lung transplant patients, and, and you said not so fast. I think there is reason to keep patients on that if they're living in an endemic area. Tell us more about that. Yeah, it's um, here we do for lung transplants. We also do in, in Tucson, Arizona, we also do lifelong prophylaxis. And it's just really hard to know which patients would benefit from the lifelong and which ones don't. I don't think we have enough data on that yet. A lot of like the centers in Phoenix and also in Tucson, there are groups that do the lifelong prophylaxis, but mostly with a, the, a mold active agent. So for example, like isavuconazole, posaconazole, voriconazole. And I'm not so sure if we need that kind of broad prophylaxis for mm-hmm. lifelong. And so I think what, you know, the letter that we wrote the letter to the editor for, for that particular paper, they were advocating doing itraconazole lifelong. And what we were pro- thinking about is, you know, perhaps, you know, maybe doing the mole active agent for the six to 12 months is reasonable, but maybe if nothing is nothing else is growing after that, you can consider bringing it back down to, you know, fluconazole given mm-hmm. cost issues and, you know, not needing to measure so much drug levels with itraconazole and also with, you know, drug, drug interactions or toxicities and things like that. We've noticed that patients tolerate fluconazole lower doses better than some of the other mold active agents, but it's tough. You know, it's really hard to know in that population. I mean, it's just such a vulnerable population. And given as you know, like the lungs are just exposed to, it's one of the few organs that's just always exposed to mm-hmm. external environment 24 <laughs> seven. It's hard to know which ones it's hard to know when to really stop the prophylaxis. Great. All right. I got another case for you uh, in the last few minutes that we have. So this is a 66 year old man with AML 
for which he undergoes a bone marrow transplant. His course is complicated by graft-versus-host disease, for which he has received steroids and then ruxolitinib. He has a right lower lobe abnormality, and it's felt to be concerning for a fungal process. He undergoes a bronchoscopy, which grows aspergillus lentulus, L-E-N-T-U-L-U-S. So you've written a little bit about this organism. Tell us more. Yes, I did not realize until fellowship how diverse the species within Aspergillus fumigatus are. And so, you know, at first it was thought to be one species, but obviously it's many more members in this complex group. And, you know, there's the Aspergillus fumigatus, sorry, sinsu stricto, which is just essentially this aspect, like the pure form of Aspergillus fumigatus. But then there's a whole bunch of other subspecies, and there's a whole group that are called cryptic species, which are species that sometimes phenotypically look like Aspergillus fumigatus. But when the microbiologist looks at the plate, they say, hmm, the spore, it's not sporulating as well, or it's not growing as well, but and it looks like in fumigatus, but doesn't really look like it. And so in those species, if you do genotypics testing, looking like tubulin structures and things like that, or in doing multitoff, you can identify these cryptic species. And so Aspergillus lentulus, you know, Aspergillus thermatomutatus, you know, several others, these are cryptic species within the Aspergillus fumigatus family. And so the reason that we care about this is twofold. One is that these species are often multi-drug resistant, so it makes the treatment more challenging. And the second thing is actually the mortality rates in these groups are actually higher. And so with Aspergillus Lentulus compared to Aspergillus fumigatus, the mortality rate for patients that have identified proven invasive lentulus infection, it's usually 60% or higher, which is higher than the fumigatus group. And so those are the two main reasons we really care about trying to identify these cryptic species because of the drug resistance and with the higher mortality. And so these are probably one, and I, these are probably some of the few species we're getting susceptibility panel is, is going to be important. Not all centers do that. I remember when I was at Hopkins, we had, you know, a run by Sean Zhang, where he has this amazing lab where he's able to do susceptibility testing of different molds. Um, but where I'm at now, we don't have that capability. And so we do send our tests to uh, our specimens to Texas, to Nathan Weinhold's um, group, to where he identifies, you know, not only the organism, but also the susceptibility testing. And so if your microbiologist does say, you know, it looks like a fumigatus, but it's growing really slow. It's not sporulating well. I'm missing some structures. I think those are the kind of species where you want to get more of a genotypic identification to see whether you're dealing with a cryptic species and to get, you want to get susceptibility panel on that because the treatments are much more challenging. Yeah, I think it really shows how uh, knowing what you're dealing with helps because uh, you have aspergillus that you think is fumigatus and the patients on, say, voriconazole, and they're not getting better. Well, maybe there's a reason for that. Or I've seen in your paper that there is a differential susceptibility with some of the isolates to the different azole. So it's something that is voriconazole sensitive in vitro, maybe resistant to isabuconazole and vice versa. So having a failure from one antifungal in the azole group does not necessarily mean that you need to go to amphotericin B. Absolutely right. And to your point, you know, with this case series that we published, there were four patients that we identified. And, you know, although, there, although there's no 
breakpoints, clinical breakpoints for Aspergillus lentulus, if we use the same ones for Fumigatus, there were resistance in voriconazole resistance in three out of four cases and intermediate in one of those cases. And these, I mean, these are in vitro, but still to your point, if patient is not improving on voriconazole, it may be that there is resistance to that particular agent. And perhaps instead of going aphrotericin, switching to another azole, for example, like posaconazole may be reasonable, but it's hard to do that without having the susceptibility information. Well, this is great. And thank you uh, for uh, sharing your experiences with the medical world in biomedical journals. It is not easy to get things published. A lot of work and I appreciate you doing that despite being a busy clinician and a busy educator and a dad. In the last few moments that we have, anything that you think that up and coming people in the field should know about as they set out in a career? A lot of people say, I want to have a, I love to teach and I want to have a career teaching. But as your experiences show from doing a master's, there's actually a lot that goes into it. It's not sort of something that you just say, well, I kind of like doing it, so I'll do it. Any advice for people interested in teaching? That's a great question. I feel that there is something to be said about both having experience while doing things. So obviously you learn a lot by teaching and learning as you go, but there's also something equally to be said about having formidable education and actually doing these things. And so I know there's different groups of thoughts about whether you need a master's in education or not. And I'm not saying to say everyone needs one, but I think some sort of education and some part of that teaching and education, whether it's a course on curriculum development, whether it's a course on assessment or a crash course on something, I think some sort of formidable education in that will help you a lot and take you you know, miles and miles ahead of versus learning as you go. I think both are important, but I think having some sort of education and something related to education would be helpful. So having both having a passion for it and then also having some formal or semi-formal training and how to actually do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Great. Well, thank you so much. And thanks everybody for uh, joining us for the Transplant ID podcast. And I cut off Dr. Nimatolai. What were you going to say? (laughs) I was just going to say thank you for having me and I appreciate this podcast and I just love listening to it and it's just fabulous. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thank you. 